So I always say, you know, that when I am helping people learn how to pitch, it is because of the amount of failure I've had. And I often say that, you know, I was cleaning my Mac. I found some like 255 versions of my initial pitch. And it took me a team month, a lot of versions until I raised the first money. That was the voice of Ayman Ashur, principal of Newton International Management, angel investor and startup advisor. I am your host, Ali Zweil, and this is the Startups Arabia podcast, where you learn about the Arab startups ecosystem from the best founders, investors, and operators in the region. My guest today is Ayman Ashur. He is the principal of Newton International Management, a company focused on technology and mobility investments. Ayman had a 20-year corporate career in the security industry before founding Blue Hill ID and leading it to NASDAQ. He's an adjunct lecturer at Suffolk University, a fellow at the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, and a member of several startup boards. Enjoy this discussion with Ayman Ashur. Now, here's our interview. My guest today is Ayman Ashur. Um, Ayman is someone I have a great pleasure to host today because he's kind of like a godfather for the ecosystem. Uh, he's a wise, experienced voice and the calm uh, attitude, especially in these turbulent time, is uh, a help to many startups. He's a person who's very generous with his time, very generous with his experience. I have you know, tried that uh, myself. And uh, I'm very grateful for it. So without further ado, welcome, Ayman. Thank you, Ali. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's really nice that you're doing this. And thank you for hosting me. So um, maybe we can start with you telling us the story of how you came into the world of startups. Well, I I always tend to sort of divide my career into three uh, phases. The first phase is, you know, childhood education, etc., uh, so from zero to 20 or thereabout, coming out as, you know, graduate in electronic and electrical engineering. Then the 20 years after that was really being immersed in the corporate world, um, mostly large companies working in a specific industry, the security industry. And it is, you know, soup to nuts in the security industry from access control uh, systems to physical security to uh, safes uh, to uh, guarding to cash in transit to gold in transit, many facets of the security industry. Uh, and then the 20 years after that was mostly focusing on the RFID industry. And that's where I started getting much more active in the world of startup. So I, I, I broke out from the corporate world uh, in, uh, in 2000. Uh, and that's when I started Newton International, uh, which started as a consulting business. Uh, mainly focusing on valuations, mergers and acquisitions and the like. And from there, uh, started focusing much more on RFID and then started my own company in the middle of a big financial crisis, 2007, 2008. And uh, so it was, you know, sort of not dissimilar to what we're at now. And uh, then pretty much left that world, as I, I always say, I transitioned from having my own vision to enabling other people's vision uh, around 2015 or so. Okay. So, I mean, uh, first of all, it sounds like the security world. I mean, you probably have incredible stories, so we'll probably circle around to that. Uh, uh, incredibly interesting stories. Uh, but you know, firstly, I'm, I, I might just... Uh, Continue where we just left off, which is starting Blue Hill ID. After such a successful, long career in the corporate world, I mean, in the middle of a financial crisis, you decide to risk everything and, and, and found the company. Uh, how did you make that decision? 
Well, it it was uh, it was really I was I, I I was engaged as I told you I had my consulting business so I was engaged by Asa Bloy the people who own HID um, and uh, Yale and all of these uh, products uh, in 2003 to do a number of acquisitions for them and to integrate them and manage them. So from 2003 till 2005, I was essentially acting as CEO for what they called identification technology group within Asabloy. And I became, I loved the, the, the strategy that I originally devised for them was backward integration. So rather they, they started out, HID was an offshoot of Hughes. So it was Hughes identification devices, Hughes aircraft. So, and then it was spun out and then eventually acquired by Asabloy. The, uh, my view then was to integrate downwards into the process of manufacturing the cards and the readers. So it was moving back into the silicon stages and into the sort of making of the antenna, making of the cards, making of the transponders, making of the readers, all of that. So we got from being an access control provider of cards and readers to being a technology provider. And when we went this step backwards, all of a sudden you look at the RFID technology and you see so many applications. Uh, not just access control. You see applications in payments, applications in uh, border control, in passports, uh, applications in, in in authentication of products. Uh, uh, you know, sort of a whole host of driver licenses, uh, car ID, object ID. So the whole sort of like the genesis of the Internet of Things really was with that, you know, sort of, uh, I'm not saying, I'm not claiming I invented it, but it, that was really seeing that opportunity. So um, I um, I wanted to basically start uh, an RFID business that is, that is focused on the technology, but addressing multiple verticals. So I had the vision of you know, an industry not dissimilar to semiconductors itself or aluminum that's addressing multiple multiple verticals. And th that was the thing that I wanted to do. So I started really from 2005 actively fundraising and, um, and it, it took quite a while. I ended up starting the company in 2007. So I always say, you know, that when I... Um, helping people learn how to pitch it is because of the amount of failure i've had and i often say that you know i was cleaning my mac i found some like 255 versions of my initial pitch and it took oh, wow. me 18 months a lot of versions until i raised the first money so uh let us double click on that 250 versions of the pitch uh, so I would assume you you had you made you pitched more than two fifty times. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah, over two years, uh, and uh, in the end, uh, yeah. over an eighteen months period, and got into term sheets, got into investment committees, got into handshakes, and you know uh, I I remember flying from. Um, Boston to Munich to Dusseldorf in the middle of the World Cup in Germany to meet a partner at one of the large, um, you know, private equities VCs uh, in, um, in 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 Germany. It's an American company, but this was the guy who was focused on this area of the industry. And then getting there and getting a message from his secretary that apologizing that he actually had to go to New York the day before. So it was a lot of uh, a lot of expenses, a lot of um, you know, sort of uh, disappointments, a lot of picking yourself back up, you know, by your bootstraps to get yourself remotivated. Yeah, it must have been. How did you manage your psychology at that time? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I always say that if it wasn't for running. I would have gone crazy. Uh, so I think sort of like 
running was something that helped uh, save my sanity. Uh, having a very supportive family, my wife and my kids were uh, very supportive and, you know, felt very well anchored. So, um, and and that helped. And, and also, I think, um, I, I want to say also, it's probably, it, it is excessive self-confidence bordering on arrogance or probably well into arrogance. I was completely convinced I'm right. Yep, yep. So, I mean, belief in the vision. I mean, I guess that's core to it as well. Very, very, very much so. It, it is, it was, it, it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I could see it, I could smell it, I could, you know, you know, and um, it was something I felt very strongly about. Yeah. And, and shout out to the spouses uh, out there for, for founders who are married, uh, who are supportive, because this is really something that's underappreciated, the, the, the amount of kind of anchoring, as you put it, uh, that one needs at home. I, I've also had this experience, and I just want to highlight it, because I don't think many people realize it. Uh, Absolutely. Give it enough, you know, credit. Um, so, you, you, I mean, ultimately... Over 250 pitches, but but all you needed at the end was one or two yeses, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. A, a, and yeah. once you, you get to that, um, things start moving much faster after that. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you said uh, like a, a minute or two ago, which is that you saw the vision as this one technology that could be used in many multi- uh, verticals. And this kind of, why it clicked with me is it, it makes sense to me that RFID is like that. But then it, that goes against the advice that a lot of people founding companies ha- have, which is focus, you know, focus on one thing, focus on one niche, uh, make it very small, etc. at first, and then think about, and then see what happens, so to speak. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, the uh, this is exactly what I was getting, and I would be in a pitch, you know, talking about access control, animal ID, e passports, payment, gaming applications, you know, uh, and you will see people saying, "But that is just, you know, too many verticals," and you. Uh, and I used like one of the analogy I told you is that is a single industry addressing multiple verticals. For maybe the first hundred pitches, I used to address it differently. I used to say, I'm like an elevator and each floor has its own rules. So here's a floor of animal ID. Here's a floor that have this. Here's a floor that have that. And it wasn't resonating. So, by, but one of the people I was giving the presentation to said, Oh, you mean really multiple verticals? It is not that you're a vertical, you got different horizontals. No, you're a foundation, you're a base, and you got multiple verticals. And it was, it was somebody who actually rejected, rejected the opportunity, but helped me a lot by giving me very coherent feedback. He's the one who said, you know, you're you're like a foundation industry. He said, you're like the plastic industry, the aluminum industry, where, yes, aluminum industry, you got the same production, you know, same technology, but then you can have airplane parts or you can have bottles or cookware or saucepans, you know. So, so it was, uh, so, so that was really helpful. So I then had to spend a lot of time explaining the synergies in the technology and why that synergy would end up giving me USP in the different bits and pieces. And it was really it was really all about taking the identification bit from all these different industries and unifying it. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know shout out to the VC who gave you good feedback uh, unlike many VCs. And uh, and shout shout out to the founders who actually listened to the feedback and incorporate it into their you know their vision and and keep evolving because you really need that to to succeed in the fundraising process I think. 
Absolutely. I, I mean, it was a, two different things were happening at the same time. On the one hand, I had a core vision that remained the same. On the other hand, uh, I pivoted so much that, you know, and, and changed so much, you know, of, of my thinking as a whole process went. And you keep saying, no, no, I'm, I'm still believing in the same vision. But in reality, no, the vision evolved. So it, it evolved a lot based on the feedback and based on the rejections and based on the level of interest and all of that. Yeah. It's kind of one of the invisible positives of, of this whole process of fundraising being so painful. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I always make a comparison, Ali. Sorry to interrupt you, but no, no, go it's ahead. a little it's it's a little bit, you know, like in the US when people run for elections, when you you, you spend sort of like a, a guy who wants to be a congressman or, you know, wants somebody wants to be a president. You know, he spends two years campaigning to do the job. So it was spending two years fundraising to do the job. So Yeah. yeah. And it prepares uh-huh. you. If, if you know, I just finished listening to uh, Jimmy Carter's, you know, uh, book, the, the one he wrote when he reached ninety, and you hear the story of how he evolved during the campaigning process and how he learned during the campaigning process. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and it goes to the concept of you know being an infinite learner and and always learning, always improving. Absolutely. So speaking of learning, uh, you had become very successful in the corporate world. Corporate world has a way of working, and the startup world has a pretty different way of, of working. Uh, and probably the more you, you learn about operating in the corporate world, the more you need to unlearn or the more things or mistakes you might uh, or fumbles you might make. So what were the biggest learnings as you made this transition? What's different? Well, in my corporate world experience, the first 10 years was very insular, North American, US-based industry. And then it was, all of a sudden, just became a really global business for me. I changed companies and um, ended up in a global role. And um, my role uh, very quickly evolved into being working with the companies that the holding company acquired into integrating them. So I was basically, uh, you know, the the guy who was making, trying to make sense of the post-acquisition of all of these different startups, different small to mid-sized businesses and integrating them into the big company. So I've learned a lot of what not to do because I've seen a lot of mistakes and I've seen sometimes when we acquired um, sometimes we acquired very nicely well-run startups and we integrated them Uh, sometimes we acquired companies that grew but then were badly managed and needed turnaround so sometimes it was that I've learned from look at this company it's so good but why has it become so poorly managed. And this was all over the world. A lot of it was in the US, some was in the UK, some was in France, Germany. So it was so it was the process of of learning, you know, and it's you're talking about some really competent people, but you know, things went astray. Yeah. But and when you actually made the the startup um, come to life, so to speak, what were the were there still things to be learned? Were, were there still surprises you found and in, and in, in how it's different from from what you had at the very very oh, early stage of oh, starting of something? Of course, of course, of course. Because when I left the corporate world, I was running uh, a five hundred million dollar business uh, with you know sort of. Uh, maybe 50,000 employees between China to South Africa to Holland to, you know, so it was, um, you get used to a certain dashboards, you get used to certain controls and all of a sudden 
you're on your own. Yep. So I, uh, so it is, it's, it's a very different world. And one of the things you also learn is the issues of values and morality and how important they are because all of a sudden you're the person who is going to be um, really um, projecting or influencing a whole culture. So certain things that you could do that were expedient to do in the corporate world um, became a no-no. It became a self-imposed no-no. And you became just much more aware of of how important uh, your actions and your style and your truthfulness. There is no more white lies. There is no more, you know, trying to make things look better than they are. All that stuff that you do in the corporate world, you don't do anymore. So, years later, uh, Blue Hill ID merged with two other companies and Identif came to life and you became the CEO. Uh, how did you decide right. that this merger was the right path path for the companies? And you know, how did that discussion start? Well, it it was uh, you know it, it was really Blue Hill ID. We were getting very strong in the RFID side of things, and the RFID and smart cards were merging because you started getting more intelligent uh, ICs, more intelligent RFID, more secure. And so if you look at the e-passports projects, e-passport is basically a smart card with an RFID interface. Yep. So uh, so it, it was natural to, to start wanting to get more expertise in that area. And I've always, you know, sort of had a lot of respect for SCM. In fact, uh, it was not a new company to me. I knew it. And uh, this uh, merger with them was a very sensible thing for us to do because we were quite strong on the transponder side and then became, you know, sort of strong on the smart card reader side. And when you think of the really central things to me at the time were things like e-passports, you know, we were trying to supply the inlay that goes into the passport and SCM were already supplying the readers that read the passport. So that was sort of a, a lot of the logic of it. Yeah. And did you approach them or did they approach you? Uh, I approached them and I have approached them uh, over many years and from well before I even sort of uh, started the company. So one of the advantages I had is I knew the industry very well and I knew the players in the industry and I was reasonably well known in the industry, you know, so. Right. And, and I guess there are challenges in merging any companies and you have a lot of experience in that uh, across your career. Uh, what, uh, I, how big were the two organizations and how did you go about the merger and um the, the 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 two i think they were of similar size and uh, they were probably a bit bigger and because they were uh, listed on nasdaq uh, and we were listed oh. on the frankfurt stock exchange so we had done a spec you know in 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 frankfurt and they were listed on nasdaq and frankfurt so uh so it was it ended up really being was known as a reverse acquisition or reverse merger. So we were sort of took on the, um, you know, sort of the, the leadership, the executive management. And, uh, but it was very much, it was very collaborative. The people there and us were working very closely together. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, not all mergers are created equal. So, what, what makes a merger value-adding, and when does it turn out to be value-destroying, in your opinion? Well, it, it, is, uh, it, it all boils down to that elusive word, synergy. 
So mm. if you have, you know, I'll give you, uh, I, I used to actually have a, a presentation on the type of synergies. So I'll give you uh, an example of uh, a positive synergy. When you have, when, when you were talking about like e-passports, for example, okay, you're, you're basically selling to the same product from both ends. So if you unify your sales force on that, you just have more things to sell to the same customer. And they are largely synergistic. You also then have, uh, you then have, because SCM had the technology for reader manufacturer and smart cards, then you can try to go into a broader reader market. So not just the readers that are used that plugged into a computer, but the readers that gets plugged into other applications or standalone. So, and similar on the other side, you know, where you now have the transponders. So you, you exploit relationships. You also exploit locations. So, so, so that's, you know, does that make sense at all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody's strong in one geo and the other company is strong in another geo and right so, so you basically had really this the three entities where you had Hirsch Electronics which was you know access control in the USA mainly with the biggest customer being the US government you had SCM which was card readers broadly uh, around smart cards but global with a mm -hmm. good global infrastructure. And then you had Blue Hill ID, which had the transponder side of the business and some of the system integration. And so that was the theory of it made sense. Right. And what about taking a company public? Uh, obviously you started a private company and then you took it public. Um, I didn't know it was a SPAC uh, yeah. before SPACs were fashionable. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So how did managing the company change after going public? And, and, and what, what was the right time for you to go public? What made you make that move? It was really, at the time, the decision to go public and to do a SPAC was mainly influenced by the investors. Uh, the, most of the investors, it was right in the middle of the crisis, you know, the 2008 banking crisis. So the issue of liquidity was a big, big issue. So going public, it means the people, you didn't have restrictive shareholders agreements. You didn't have any of that. So people, you know, put their money, put 2 million euro, $2 million, and they got, you know, the right number of shares, and then they can trade them. They can get in and out as much as they want. So that what what drove the decision, and uh, the uh, the problem was it was too premature. So mm. it was always you know so in, in in retrospect I wish I'd never done it. it because no. yes, absolutely. Because when you're when you're building something, being public is not really helpful because. You're, when you're building something, you're making acquisitions. There are lots of costs. There are uh, things that go right, things that go wrong. And in the meantime, you've got this whole demand to be the public face of the company. And my own ability to, to manage a job, especially once we became listed on NASDAQ, I found that I'm spending disproportionate amount of time on the public company side and investors and investor relations and all of that uh, much more so than the things that, you know, really needed to be done. Right. And that kind of highlights the fact of also the choice of investors themselves, whether, you know, they can wait it out until you're ready to go public, so to speak, and or, or what type of, I mean, whether they have the same vision to build towards with you and they can have that stamina with you right right and and i i guess part of it is my own startup was a is a and, and the word startup is really has to be used loosely because it was a combination of a vision of that that that, uh, that had specific product specific product vision 
and acquisitions. So it had a, a roll-up element and an acquisition and, and a startup element, and mm-hmm. the two combined, and that made it you know sort of more complicated. Uh, so the roll-up you could have done it all day as a as a public would have been fine. Uh, because you wouldn't be investing a lot in new technologies and a lot of development. but yep. So we're trying to do both at the same time. And that was really, public was not the best environment for that. Got it. So, Ayman, you, you mentioned the importance of, you know, values, morality, ethics for startups especially. And, and these times, as we speak, you know, these are very uncertain, very tough times we're going through right now, a public market's we're recording this uh, episode as, you know, SVB just blew up, Credit Suisse. Uh, we have this just borrowed over $50 billion from the Swiss uh, central bank. Uh, public markets are not doing so great. So how does one lead with integrity in difficult times and not just good times? Well, uh, the the um, it really, I believe it, it it's sort of, you don't have much of a choice because I, I often think of somebody who immigrated at a relatively young age, you know, to, to the U.S. And I, I look at some of the things that I have done when I first went, when I first moved to the U.S. And I feel ashamed of myself because I did a lot of things, you know, pushing and shoving and, you know, trying to make it. And you then get to a point where you say, do I want this culture in the company that I'm building? What do I want the company that I'm building? How do I want to be viewed by my subordinates? How do I want to be viewed by, you know, we got to a point with Blue Hill ID or identity, you know, being 500 people or whatever. How do I want the new hire to be thinking of me? How... So it's a little bit of leading by example. So you 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 really sort of become um, much more aware of that responsibility of the message of how do you want how do you want your customers to perceive you? Do you want your customers to perceive you as somebody who exaggerates, who lies, or somebody who has integrity? And you try to get that. As part of the DNA of the company as a whole, you know. Yeah. So it is. It is. It is simple things like I used to. Uh, whenever we're in a discussion or something, and I discover I'm wrong, I used to go out of my way of saying, "Hey guys, I'm wrong, and I'm wrong, and blah 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 blah," and own up to my mistakes in detail. Because I wanted to get people to see that this is okay, that this is a culture that admits mistakes and you know moves on with it, and that that was important to me. Yeah, I, I think it's just uh, so important to to act out the values you want. If you want your team to to work hard, you have to work hard. If you want them to be honest to you, you have to be honest to them. If you want them to uh, own yeah. up to their mistakes and learn from them. You have to do the same. Uh, that's yeah. the only way, actually, to do it. Yeah, you know, in in the big corporate world, you always have. You know, we talked about synergy. Synergy is basically business unit cooperating with another business unit. So, the end of every month, if you didn't meet your targets in a big corporate world, the really important thing was to be able to blame it on somebody else. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to send a clear message that that is not what we wanted to do when it came to to, to sort of extracting synergy. And, and that's why I wanted to be much more open about mistakes. Yeah. So you, you recently wrote about the importance of a founder being perfectionist, you know, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> How do you balance that idea with the need for speed and the idea, you know, move fast and break things uh, that that is also being told to founders? And I I didn't necessarily say that the founder has to be perfectionist. I was really talking about if you're a perfectionist, which I consider myself, you know, to be, um, 
you have this challenge of how do you balance scalability with perfectionist? You know, that's exactly right. the point you're saying. And it becomes a real obstacle to growth, fast growth and scalability to find people who share these values. And what I was trying to get to people, to get across is that you really need to, to build your perfectionist attitude in your workflow, in your process, because the really tricky thing to grow quickly is to be able to get Mr. and Ms. Average and make them successful. Right. So, so it is, it is really, so it's being a perfectionist is not by employing an army of perfectionist people, but by having a process that values the high degree of perfectionist performance, but having the average people do it. So, right. so that was, that was the, the message I was trying to, to get yeah. across. Yeah. Um, and and how does that? Uh, there's a tension there as well between that and the advice to always hire A plus players and uh, people who of that type. So, is it more important to have an A plus process or A plus players? Because A plus players they don't like to be you know uh, constrained with processes as much. Uh, the answer is is both. Uh, you 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 if you have if you have a choice between. A class and B class, higher A class. But in in a tough economic environment uh, with, you know, uh, finance finance being difficult, financing be, being difficult, to be successful, you need to be able to grow with the B player, you know, w- with the C player. And of course, if you can if you can get all A players, great. But quite often you can't, so that becomes an obstacle against your scalability. Yeah, uh, it, it kind of goes to you know in the early days you probably need very strong very people with initiative, and at the same time you probably can't afford them. So yeah, it becomes uh, really. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I was go going to say it becomes really important to recognize talent. Uh, the yes. potential to be uh, great players yeah. in the field, so to speak. I, I mean, if you take, for example, Apple stores, okay, you go to an Apple store, you almost have the same experience in Apple stores in Singapore, yep. in the US, in Canada, in the UK, in Germany. You almost have the same experience. Not all the people in these stores are A players, but you yep. always get the impression that they are. But they are not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of effort on the back end, in the background. Uh, right, right. And, and and the process and the values and the yeah. message that you're sending and the culture of accepting blame, all of that. You know, so so that, that that's really the best example I can think of. Yeah, yeah. It's a great example. So um, zooming out a bit to the regional ecosystem, uh, uh, what do you think are the biggest opportunity that's not being addressed aggressively enough in the region for startups? The 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 what I feel uh, is that there is a a big confusion in the region, in the Middle East or the Arab speaking region, uh, between. Um, what is an exitable business and what is a good small medium-sized business what business should be going to a private equity versus what business should be going to a vc and you know and and this is really the issue and i think part of the problem is exasperated by the vcs not finding enough companies so they invest in things that they shouldn't be investing in mm-hmm. so so and you don't have enough private equities uh, going after the market. So you so, so this is really this is part of the the, the biggest single issue that I see um, affecting the the the, the, the region is uh, is the lack of private equities. 
because we have a lot of really, really good businesses that are not exitable, that can generate very nice returns, pay dividend, grow being good, solid, mid-sized companies, but will not give you the sort of returns that a VC is looking for. Uh, and the in terms of valuation, the founder should be getting 10, 15%, not 90%, because it's a it's a PE model rather than a VC model. Okay. So, I mean, that's, I think, a big challenge for the region. Uh, are there any startups that you think should be being created or any industries in which startups should be created in the region, but you don't see enough activity there or not enough people addressing that? Uh, there, there are lots of lots of things that you feel lacking. I think one of the biggest areas that I see, and I, if I can talk about Egypt in particular, for example, sure. is the manufacturing industry, the hardware manufacturing industry. Egypt has um, has done a good job of establishing itself in the IT industry and and as a supplier of labor and skills uh, in the IT. But if you look at the amount of engineering graduates in Egypt, uh, in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, electronics, you you have a lot of skills, but you it's very hard to import components. There is no... Um, the ability to prototype uh, a circuit board in Egypt is almost nil. Uh, at at Identive, we had an engineering center in India, and we um, at first they were doing mostly software and firmware, and you know over the years we started doing more and more hardware, and then more and more hardware being designed in India, more and more hardware being manufactured or at least prototyped in India. This is a really big problem. And this is not just in Egypt, it's in the entire region. And you can't have you can't have a turnaround of a circuit board anywhere in the Middle East in 24 hours, in in a week, in two weeks. You have to send it to China and you have to or Singapore or wherever to, to get something back. So you know packaging industry, uh, molds all of these things, all of the, the industries that the manufacturing were, uh, so, so these are issues that I think um, act as in impediments to the economic growth as a whole, and they are in the same time real opportunities. Right. So going to your the investment side of your story, so to speak, uh, how do you evaluate investments? What makes you think I want to invest in a company? Um, the founder. The founder. Uh, what about the know, founder? It is really being excited about the founder, being excited about the founder, um, the uh, talent, vision, drive, perseverance, ethics, all of the stuff. So, mm-hmm. so, so that would be th- that for me is is the first thing. I, uh, you and I, before we started, we're talking about the the app I'm using with the live thing behind me and Phil Levin, yep. etc. One of the things I, I learned from Phil when he started on the investment side. Uh, he said to me, he said, you know, uh, there are two kinds of investors, investors who see an idea and they get really, really excited about it. And they imagine themselves running this idea, running this company, doing it. And there are other investors who get excited by the founder and sort of look at the founder, he or she, and imagine, imagine them running their old business. So... So it is, you know, so I'm very much the latter and because I, I've learned that ideas change, visions change, pivot and re-pivot and pivot from the pivot, you know, times 10. So, so what's really, really important is the founder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would tend to agree. <laughs> so does... Everyone, like in investing, I'm sure you've seen a lot of companies. Uh, Everyone has big misses when it comes to investing. 
What's your biggest has what miss? big misses? Oh, things. Oh, uh, oh, lots, lots. I have misses all the time. You know, uh, you know, and I and I think you know probably. Uh, 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 and when people say I have no regrets, no, I have regrets as well, you know. So, so it is yes. But but you move on, you know. Yeah, you just have course. to keep you, you keep moving on, and you know, as long as you're uh, winning more than you're losing, or you're occasionally winning enough to make up for your losses, that's great. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and and I think if you're not missing some good companies or great companies, you're probably not seeing enough great companies. Exactly. Yeah. Um, does anything like come to mind in that area? Uh, I try not to remember. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. No, I, I I mean there there are lots of really great opportunities, but sometimes you know I have uh, like one of the things having spent most of my career in the security industry, I tend to be much more focused on um, on on the other side of the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Because if you think of the Maslow hierarchy of needs being the biggest, your first need being physical safety, so that's yep. security, I tend to be focused much more on things like entertainment and uh, uh, games and content uh, and that's why when you had your startup and we were talking about it, I was much more interested in in that sort of thing. Yep. So, uh, so it is uh, really the the thesis just change. Interesting. So, uh, being a startup founder is is incredibly stressful. You know, even on the day you raise you fundraise, that means you have only eighteen to twenty four months before your uh, uh, going bankrupt, basically. So, um, how do you think founders can handle the mental stress stress of it? Or because you, I've seen you speak recently about that as well. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, it, it it is. First of all, you gotta you gotta accept and you gotta recognize that the stress doesn't end at any stage. It actually increases. So you might be very stressed until you get your first money. Well, wait, when you get the first money and you start getting more and more, the stress becomes much, much harder. And I remember at, at some point I was doing a fundraising and we were already public, but we were trying to do a pipe and it was fundraising. And the amount of stress I was under was, you know, incredible. Uh, part of it is how do you deal with it is number one, acknowledge it. Number two, you need to send positive message to your team during that stress. Mm -hmm. So you need, you need to project confidence and, you know, positive and you need, you know, uh, if, if you start looking defeated, your whole team will be defeated. Yep, yep. You know, so it might be that you're being torn up on the inside, but outside you have to be positive. Right. Uh, and the other thing for me is sports. It is mm -hmm. things and it is vigorous sports. You know, it is running, long distance running. Uh, it is sort of weightlifting, you know, anything that you're you're exerting so much effort and it, not a gentle walk you need to be, exert so much effort that it washes you because yeah. you you only if you only when you're exerting so much effort that your brain eases you stop dwelling you and it enables you it tires you out so you can actually sleep better mm -hmm. So yeah. I don't know if I'm answering your question, Ali, no. or, or not. But you know, everybody how, has how their own you, ways. And... How, how would you answer that question? <laughs> oh yeah, um, because yeah, I think mentally, what you tell you, what how you speak to yourself mentally, that's you know, you need to kind of almost take pressure off yourself. Uh, I'm also for uh, sports. I think it's very important. I know that 
the week I don't play, I, I like to play football, for example. The week I don't play football is a more stressful week. Uh, but also, yes, weightlifting and all that is important. But I also think walking and clearing your mind and, uh, you know, is uh, is also important. So all these things factor in. And really just being consistent at not using stress as an excuse to abuse yourself uh, by eating bad food or, you know, not uh, uh, doing sports or not spending some time with your family and all that. Uh, sometimes we we just... Um, it just we we abuse ourselves, so to speak, by by using by saying I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, and just your self talk really makes a big difference. Yes. Yeah, and and, and you know to what you were just talking about, maybe I could follow up on that about communicating. Uh, we founders with the team. You were just mentioning that, and we, founders need to communicate a lot, both internally and externally. Uh, so, what do you think are are the best practices for founders? I mean, who should know the bad news, for example? Uh, I, there like is, it, I, I wouldn't hide the bad news. So transparency would be one of the values that you would you would want to have. So uh, and you know, whenever if if people perceive you to be in denial or not understanding the problems. Uh, that will project negatively on you. Then you become delusional, not positive, but delusional. So you need, so you need to acknowledge it. And, uh, but you, you're, you're, you can have a very difficult situation, but still be positive about it and positive in your ability to prevail. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so. if you're not positive in your ability to prevail, this is the time to bail out. Mm. Yeah. So, so kind of double clicking on that's kind of acknowledging the challenge and uh, communicating to the team and rallying the team around solving the challenge rather right. than uh, ignoring it or not. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, like one of the things that when I'm helping people with their pitches, one of the things quite often people say, well, this VC told me blah, 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 these problems. So I said, well, you should acknowledge it. You know, yes, these are legitimate problems, you know, because the fact that you also see them as a problem. So acknowledge it and explain how you're dealing with it. And if there are uncertainties, identify these as uncertainties, you know, but rather than because you're you're not going to convince the VC that these are no problems, especially when you know they are. So, so be proactive about it, because when when people see you worrying about things they are worried about, they worry less. Yep, yep, and they trust you more. Exactly. If you're talking to a subordinate about doing something, and they articulate to you exactly all the things that you're worrying about, it. You'll say, all right, well, they know what they're doing, so I'll leave it in their hands. Yep. So so you you need to do more of that. Absolutely. In good times and bad. Yeah. Um, so uh, another thing that's kind of happening these days in the region is that, um, you know, the cash-rich rich countries in the region are attracting startups from the less cash-rich countries or in the region. Uh, and 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 then many people are actually making the move, and we're seeing that in the ecosystem uh, a lot. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I I, I think you know uh, a country like the UAE uh, created a very good sort of infrastructure for startups, and the infrastructure is in starts with the legal infrastructure so you have you know things like the DIFC and and you have the ability to have work in Dubai or in the United Arab Emirates under laws that are different from the laws of the country which is basically you know so so you you you've got a whole body of laws and a whole system you can be operating under your agreements your shareholders agreements all of that a lot of the shareholders' agreements that are written 
in other countries are not applicable because they the laws in these countries have not caught up with them whether it's egypt or saudi or jordan etc so 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 this is so so the uae has done that the uae has also done a good job with things like immigration and ownership and and all of that uh i think the the move in saudi is obviously huge but i think it's also premature uh i think we we can now look at uae and see over a number of years, you know, a lot of really, really good companies that have been built there and are operating regionally, if not globally. Yeah. But, you know, with Saudi, it is premature. Uh, it is going to be um, uncertain. Can you get people into the country or not? Uh, do you have enough skills? I understand the Saudization laws and the need to have more Saudis in the workplace. And I, I don't blame them at all for doing that, but that can be an obstacle to a startup, you know, because right. when it when it's when you're a startup, you need to get, you know, you need to balance your resources very carefully and you need to get the people that you need and that you're comfortable with, but being forced to hire X number of different nationalities, etc., is 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 problematic. So so I, I would, uh, it's wonderful that a country like Saudi Arabia is doing that, but I'd like to see more time. The other thing is, I don't know about the laws in, in terms of shareholding and passing shares and inheritance laws and all of that. I think all of that stuff is addressed fully in a place like the UAE, but not yet in Saudi. And, you know, so, uh, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but for example, the UAE people kind of say um, the market is much smaller, so you don't have that many consumers. Versus, of course, a country like Egypt, for example, or even Morocco, or, or and definitely Saudi. And the, the market is uh, you know, is just by definition bigger. Um, so, uh, how would you think? I mean, should companies be where their market is or where the, their team is or where the legal infrastructure is well it it is you uh, it, it companies uh, i tend to look at startups and and business in isolation from the concepts of patriotism and religion so yeah. companies should be where it makes the most economic sense for them to be so right. when it comes, so their headquarters should be in the place where it is easiest to, uh, to, 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 to have applicable legal agreements, easiest to have bank accounts, easiest to transfer money in and out, easier to have tax authority, etc. So that would, uh, so that is the first thing. Now, if I'm selling into Egypt or Saudi Arabia, you may need to have a sales company in that country, mm-hmm. or you may need to have a dealer in that country. But, uh, so that's a different question mark. Right. The technology and the development, if it is easier to develop and more cost effective to develop in Egypt or in Jordan, then you should have a subsidiary or uh, an operation center in that country that's doing that. Right. So, so it it really is. You need to be um, you need to be looking at each of these uh, you know questions aspect. and yeah. select yes uh, each aspect and selecting the right thing. Right. Okay. And, um, you were going to say something. Yes. Yeah, so, so I I I think coming back to Egypt specifically, mm-hmm. if you're cre- if you're setting up a company and you have global ambitions. You can't set, you can't make the legal headquarter and the banking relationship in Egypt. Yes. Because it is going to be once you get the money in, it's going to be hard to get the money out. And if if you're sending people out, how do you deal with the tax authorities? How do you do? You have to get things translated. If you're setting up a subsidiary company, if you're making an acquisition, so you, you need to have you know it's where it is simpler. But if you're setting up a business that is mainly going to be selling in Egypt, then yes, set it up in Egypt. Great. Got it. Yeah, so let me move to the quick fire questions where I ask a quick 
quick question that can have a quick answer. Uh, the first one is what book do you like or books do you like to recommend to others? Uh, mostly about uh, um, Arab-Israeli conflict or theology is what I read. <laughs> Interesting. So any specific books? Uh, the, the book that I've actually finished reading and uh, I um, enjoyed a lot is a book uh, called In an, In an Antique Land. It is written by an Indian-American uh, called Amitav Ghosh. And he uh, spent a lot of time uh, in Egypt, learned to speak, you know, excellent Egyptian, even Bahira dialect. And uh, the book is about um, alternating between his history in Egypt in the 90s and the history of um, a Jewish, uh, Tunisian, Egyptian um, guy who immigrated to India in the Mamluki era. Interesting. And the documents of that guy found in the Cairo Geniza documents, and he was doing research on that. And you discover fascinating things like the naval battle between Egypt and Portugal in the 1500s off of the coast of yeah. India. In the Red Sea, and, right? No, no, oh, wow. uh, uh, off of the coast of India. India. In the, wow, yeah, in the Arabian Sea. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. That really marked the end of the uh, Arab and Muslim uh, trade with India and right. the beginning of the European control. Got it. It's 15 something, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, um, who do you think we should have as a guest on the podcast or guests? Uh, I, uh, more founders, uh, more, more founders. I think you should, I don't know, Ahmad Assam, if you, uh, if you had Ahmad Assam, Ahmad Assam was F16 apps and he currently works for Apple. Um, so he's, uh, he's excellent. Uh, you could have, uh, people like Iman Hailouz from Abjad, Mm -hmm. uh, from Jordan, uh, you could have uh, people uh, like um, the uh, Ayman Ismail, if you have not had him, from the AUC. Yeah, Ayman yeah. Ismail is, is wonderful because he sees so much and he's he's got a great handle on the ecosystem. Um, there are lots and lots of people who can tell you things from different angles. So that's really, you know, it's just different. There are lots of fascinating people and you want to get people who, uh, you know, you should have yourself. (laughs) Because you you have, you know, you'll be surprised, but I still still remember uh, what you're doing. I still remember the IP discussions. I still remember the two sides of, of, of the activity, the, the photo ID and the social network and all of that. So you should have yourself because what you had was, you know, uh, very, very interesting. Okay. Well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll have you host me then at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so um, another quick five. Qu- what question should I have asked you that I didn't? Uh, what's wrong with your eye? <laughs> because I'm not seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I just had surgery on my eye, so I'm not looking, as yeah. you know. But uh, so, yeah. uh, no, uh, I, I, I think this has been really very, very pleasant. I, I hope you will have uh, good material out of it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And um, how can people reach you if they want to get your advice or or talk to Newton about investments? Uh, first of all, I don't offer consulting services to startups. I don't make money out of startups when I am, you know, I, I uh, so I, I'm not looking for uh, what I always do is, is basically I have clients that tend to be in the large large companies yep, yep. Uh, that's who I, I that's who I generate money for and I invested yep. into startups uh, so people can reach out on on Facebook or Twitter or Cora I'm very mm-hmm. active on Cora as well 
but uh, the, the main thing is I always ask that people uh, be very clear what you want. And uh, if I can help answer anything, I, I will. If I can't, I won't. So. Yeah. And, and I can vouch for that, that if you can help, mm. you always do. <laughs> and I, Thank uh, that's very much something uh, I'm grateful for. And uh, I like to close the podcast on a note of gratitude. So uh, my final question is, what is a gift someone has given you that has had a large effect on you, a positive effect on your life? I, I guess uh, it would probably be uh, my wife. Uh, just sort of the level of trust and you know friendship and camaraderie and uh, support would be uh, would be the main thing you know so sort of like I I don't recognize you know the person I was before I met her you know sort of so so uh, so I think that would probably be uh, the biggest uh, thing in terms of business. I've been fortunate enough to meet many people uh, who have been sometimes better than I have been. So, uh, so you you just um, you meet lots and lots of people, and you uh, you know you're uh, you'll meet some you know people who will be horrible, but the vast majority are good people. Absolutely. Um, that's a wonderful thing to end on. Um, and thank you very much. Uh, I'm grateful as well for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have that uh, upended episode soon with you interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> will right. be my pleasure. All right, Ali. Thank, thank you, Ayman. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Startups Arabia podcast. If there was something you really liked about what the guests said today, reach out to them on social media and tell them what you liked. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? You don't want to miss any of our great upcoming episodes. Also, please rate us and give us comments on our social media accounts so that we know how to improve. And also tell us what you like. We don't mind hearing that either. Until next time, this was your host, Adi's Whale.